Last lesson, we left off with Abraham and his son Isaac alone, where? On Mount Moriah, having departed from the two servants who had accompanied them on that three-day journey from the land of the Philistines. Abraham so far alone. Abraham alone knew the purpose of this mission. Only he knew that it was his son Isaac who God had requested to be offered on the fiery altar. Isaac himself did not know this. Yet Abraham had told the two young men that both he and Isaac would come again to them after completing their time of worship up on Mount Moriah. And that we saw in chapter 22, verse 5. And that statement, as we learned in our previous lesson, was not a deliberate deception on the part of Abraham. Rather, it was a monumental statement of faith, probably the greatest statement of faith that he made in his whole life. Abraham's 50 to 55 years already spent walking with the Lord had taught him some very critical truths. He had learned that he could trust God. Therefore, he put his total confidence in God's promises regarding Isaac. God had said, you know, through Isaac, that Abraham would give rise to nations of peoples. And most importantly, to the promised seed, with a capital S, the, the Savior of the world. So Abraham's faith in God was so confident that he firmly believed that God was able to actually raise Isaac back from the dead after he, Abraham, had obediently gone ahead and slain him, offered him up on the altar. He had come, you see, to that point of, of uh, faith in his walk with the Lord where he had learned what total surrender meant. Abraham was willing to completely cast himself upon God's person. He knew enough about God's holiness, God's justice, God's goodness, God's righteousness, God's faithfulness, God's trustworthiness, uh, that he knew he could cast himself completely on God's person and also on God's promises and God's power. So much so that, I mean, he, he understood that God could even raise someone from the dead. But what about Isaac? I mean, we've seen Abraham's faith, but what about Isaac? So far, Isaac's faith has not really been tested. He had been obedient to this point in the narrative, but so far he had not yet discovered what was actually going to be requested of him. So how would he do when it came to being asked to be literally a living sacrifice. This was going to be his living sacrifice test. And that's really the ultimate test of all, isn't it? I mean, he was actually going to be asked to be willing to give his very life in total surrender to God. So we take up now the account of Genesis chapter 22 with the critical moment when Isaac would question his father as to the provision of the necessary lamb for the burnt offering. After three days of probably really dreading this moment, you know, the moment when Abraham realized he would have to tell his son that he, the son, was to actually serve as the sacrificial lamb, we come to this moment in time in our narrative. As we continue then with the third division, remember we had a three-part outline in last week's lesson entitled Clear Vision. We only got 
through verse 6 of chapter 22. Well, we pick up with that same outline, and we'll cover verses 7 to 14 today. But I changed the title. This really should be Clear Vision Part 2, but I decided to change the title to um, Where is the Lamb? Today's message is Where is the Lamb? And we'll look under great faith. We've already covered the preparations, the place, and the parting. Now, in today's lesson, we're going to look at the problem, the prediction, the proof, the prevention, the provision, and the praise. So let's begin with the problem in verse 7. All right? Let me just uh, reread verse 6 so you get a feeling for where we are. Or verse, start at verse 5. It says in verse 5, And Abraham said unto his young men, those were the two servants that went with them, Abide ye here with the ass, and I and the lad will go yonder and worship and come again to you. Verse 6, And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it upon Isaac his son, and he took the fire in his hand and a knife, and they went both of them together. Now here's where we get to the problem, verse 7. And Isaac spake unto Abraham his father and said, My father... And he, Abraham, said, Here am I, my son. And he said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? As the particular mountain to which God had led Abraham, as it came now into view on the third day of their traveling, Abraham knew the importance of going the rest of the way up the mountain Alone with Isaac. Therefore, we learned last time that he dismounted from the donkey and he left it along with the food supplies and probably their sleeping equipment with the two servants telling them to wait until they return from their time of worship. And then what did he do? He placed the wood for the sacrifice upon the back of Isaac, and he himself, as you can see in this picture, he took the fire in one hand, the pot of burning coals or whatever they had, and then the knife in the other hand, and the two, father and son, began their ascent up the mountain. It must have been a very, very difficult time for um, Abraham, a very difficult and tender time for him, and we can't help but wonder if all the way to the top of the mountain he was not fighting back tears and all kinds of emotions as he thought of what awaited him when he got to where they were going, the, the pain and suffering that not only he would have to go through, but especially what his son was soon to encounter. Also, we cannot help but wonder if Abraham feared what uh, Isaac's reaction would be when he finally learned that he was to be the one placed upon the altar. Did Abraham worry that uh, Isaac would resist him and try to run away? I mean, after all, Abraham was an old man. That would not be very difficult to do, to run away from him, to resist him, to fight him off. And to Abraham, if you really think about it, that would actually have been worse than losing him through death. Because Abraham fully trusted God that he would give Isaac back to him through resurrection. If he actually killed him, that God would raise him from the dead. But if Isaac resisted God's will and got angry with his father and battled with him for the knife or just bolted away from him, then... Abraham might never see his son again. 
because his son would not trust him. His son would be angry with him. His son would maybe even hate him. I mean, did you ever think about that? That would be worse for Abraham if his son resisted his will and God's will. Actually, however, the account gives us no indication of any kind of concern on Abraham's part over his son's reaction when he would finally learn the truth of the matter. It seems that Abraham knew his son very, very well. This was a young man who all of his life had heard about the magnificent power of the living God, the God who had actually given him his own life even through impossible circumstances. Isaac had heard, you know, from both his mother and from his father and from everyone who knew his family that he was a living miracle of the power and the person and the promises of God. Isaac had grown up also seeing the life of faith lived before him, you know, day in and day out by both of his parents who were very mature believers. So what does this say to us as Christian parents? This is a fantastic challenge to us as parents. How persuasive, we might ask ourselves, how persuasive is our own faith in our children's eyes? Do they see us living our faith so strong and so consistent that they are also encouraged to embrace it? Do you ever wonder why there are so many young people who do not follow their um, parents' professed faith, their Christian faith? I mean, we, we are losing our young people right and left, aren't we? Once they don't have to, aren't under the umbrella of their parents, they stop coming to church. Have you ever wondered why? Well, here we have a fantastic example to learn from. Abraham and Sarah were great parents from what we see in Isaac's submission and willingness to even be a living sacrifice for God. So, although the mind and the heart of Abraham would have been very, very heavy with the task that was before him, yet it doesn't appear that Abraham feared his son's reaction to what he would soon learn. Just as God the Father never, for one minute, doubted that his son would willingly lay down his life, although he didn't relish doing it, did Christ look forward to going to the cross? No, he didn't. Remember when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, he said, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, what? Not as I will, but as thou wilt. Can't you just hear Isaac saying the exact same words? You know, I'd rather not do this. Let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt, he would say to his father. So Abraham seemed to intuitively know that his son would not resist doing his will and God the Father's will. So as Abraham and Isaac approached the spot where they would build their altar, the moment had arrived for Isaac to understand his own part in this drama to take place. Looking around, as they got there, you can imagine Isaac looking around, uh, it occurred to him that, well, here was the wood for the fire, and, and here's the fire, and here's the knife for the slaughter. We have everything, but 
something was missing. There was no what? There was no lamb. So we come to verse, verses, actually verses 7 and 8. I haven't read verse 8 yet, but we come to verses 7 and 8 where we have, and this is interesting, this is the only recorded conversation in all of the Word of God that we have between Abraham and Isaac. Now we know they talked a lot to each other, but this is the only recorded conversation between father and son in all of their lives together. Now notice also the similarity of their opening conversation with the opening conversation that we had seen between God and Abraham back in verse 2. Remember when God had called out Abraham's name, Abraham, and how had Abraham immediately responded? By saying, behold, here I am. And now Isaac, very politely, you can tell this is a, a nice young man, he says, my father... And again, how does Abraham immediately respond? By saying, here I am, my son. Notice that the emphasis in this opening of this only recorded conversation between Abraham and Isaac is on their relationship as what? Father and son. Circle those words if you don't mind writing in your Bible. Father and son. He says, my father. Abraham says, my son. Also, we find that the prime emphasis of this only recorded discussion between Abraham and Isaac has to do with fire. You might want to circle fire. What does fire symbolize in the Bible? God's divine justice against, or judgment against sin. And also, this only recorded conversation also deals with wood. Wood and fire, fire, divine justice or judgment. And wood symbolizes the cross. And then what else does it talk about? The lamb for the burnt offering. What does all this look, look forward to? We've got uh, father, son, fire, wood, and a lamb. It all looks forward, it all looks ahead with clear vision. Remember, Moriah means clear vision to the Lord Jesus. So you, we see again how the Holy Spirit, who inspired Moses and inspired uh, the conversation between Abraham and Isaac, the Holy Spirit was attempting to fix our vision ahead to the suffering for sin which would occur right there on Mount uh, Moriah. On Calvary, actually. So what exactly was Isaac's question? He looked around and he realized a problem. So he asked his father, he said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Isaac had obviously been well taught about sacrifices. Abraham had seen to it that his son understood that true worship of God involved the shedding of the innocent blood of a sacrifice. He probably taught Isaac from a child how God had first shed the blood of an innocent lamb to use its coat in order to cover the shameful nakedness of Adam and Eve after they had first sinned in the garden. And Abraham would have taught his son also how God had accepted the sacrifice lamb of righteous Abel, whereas he uh, rejected the fruit of his own labor, labor presented by Cain, you know, the self-works 
sacrifice that was offered by Cain. So Abraham had obviously been a good spiritual father. He taught his son all about the way to truly worship God, which was through a substitute uh, sacrifice, an animal, sinless animals shed blood to cover the sins. And God, of course, had known all along that Abraham would be a good father, that he would prove to be a good father. Remember this statement that God had made about Abraham back in Genesis 18:19. God had predicted this when he said, For I know him, I know Abraham, that he will command his children and his household after him, and they shall keep the way of the Lord. And when I thought about that, I, re- I was reminded of Ishmael, because God said that he will command his, not son, but children, plural, and that they would keep the way of the Lord. So again, this might be an indication that Ishmael truly was saved. Abraham set the example for what all believing parents should do with their children from the earliest age possible when they can first begin to understand what you're saying. He had instructed them, all of his children, not only Ishmael and Isaac, but the children he would have later on through his second wife, Keturah. He had instructed them in the things of the Lord. Now, one of my favorite authors, John G. Butler, makes the following comment in his book on Abraham, which I thought was worthy of repeating. He says, quote, Isaac's knowledge that the lamb was missing exceeds the knowledge of many folks today. A good number of folk in our churches would not know the lamb was missing. They are so spiritually dull that they cannot tell the difference between a sermon that honors Christ and a sermon that leaves Christ out entirely. Even some theologians do not know the lamb is necessary, let alone missing. They embrace a theology that brings salvation without Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. Give Isaac great credit For he knew what was missing. He knew the lamb was essential for a sacrifice of sins. He knew you could not worship without the lamb. Fire and wood are not enough. You must have the lamb. Churches are seldom without either the fire of emotionalism or the wood of formalism. But most of them lack the lamb, the most important ingredient of all in worship. End of quote. If you're in a church that is missing the lamb, you know what I recommend? Get out. Leave. Go to a church where they understand that the lamb is the center of everything. Well, because God is omniscient, meaning all-knowing, he had foreseen man's sin. I mean, he knows the end from the beginning. So even before he began his creation work, he had planned a provision for man's salvation, man's redemption. And that provision was in his son, the lamb, Jesus Christ, was in truth the lamb slain from before the foundation of the world, as it tells us in Revelation 13.8. So God's command to Abraham... Get thee into the land of Moriah and offer there thine son, thine only son, for a burnt offering. All of this was merely a dress rehearsal for Calvary. As we watch Isaac 
climb up Mount Moriah, the wood on his back, you know, getting heavier and heavier with each step, who do we see? We see the Lord Jesus making his way up the slopes of Calvary. In Isaac, you see, we see something of what Calvary meant to the Lord Jesus. And in Abraham, we see something of what Calvary meant to who? God the Father. We can just imagine the look on Abraham's face when his beloved son looked him straight in the eyes and innocently asked, My father, where is the lamb? And I personally believe, I mean, I can't be dogmatic, but I believe that even before Abraham's response in the next verse, in verse 8, which really, when we look at that verse, we'll see he really didn't specifically tell Isaac that he was to be the, the sacrifice. He really didn't you know, tell him that. <laughs> So this is why I personally believe that Isaac learned the truth of the situation simply by the expression on his father's face, what what he read there. Well, we move next now to the fantastic response which is given by Abraham to his son who had asked the question, where is the lamb? And this response was actually a prophecy, a fantastic prophecy, actually one with a double fulfillment. So we go from part D, the problem, to part E, the prediction. Let's look at verse 8. And Abraham said, My son, God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. And then it says, So they went, both of them, together. That's the second time we have that. Remember, we had that back in verse 6, and they went, both of them, together. Well, this incredible answer by Abraham probably contained a whole lot more than he initially realized that he was saying. There are actually three truths in this single statement that he made. God will provide himself a lamb. It tells us, first of all, that God would provide a lamb. And that was true in a double sense, wasn't it? That God would provide a lamb. Because in just a little while, God did provide a ram. A ram is a, an adult male sheep, or an adult male lamb. So God would, in just a little while, provide a ram in the bushes to be a substitute for Isaac. So that was the first fulfillment of that prophecy. And then some 2,000 years later, remember now, Abraham was 2,000 years before the cross. We're 2,000 years behind the cross. He was 2,000 years before. Uh, On that very same mountain, God would provide another lamb, right? The sinless Lord Jesus would be mankind's savior from sin. Man himself did not certainly provide a savior, I mean, man can't provide a savior for himself. God did it. God provided the lamb. So one truth, which is included in Abraham's statement here, was that God himself would provide a lamb. And God did provide a lamb. He provided a ram and a lamb. Now, his statement can also be read to mean that God would provide a lamb for himself. God will provide himself a lamb. See, there's three different ways you can read this same sentence. 
Since God had determined before the creation of the world that he would save man from his fall into sin, which he knew would occur, he needed a lamb to accomplish that great task of redemption or the great task of salvation. Only God could provide that which would satisfy himself. Nothing that man could ever offer would meet with God's satisfaction. Nothing man could provide would meet God's own divine requirements of sinlessness. So Abraham here was saying, even though he probably didn't realize all this that he was saying, but he was saying that God himself would provide the lamb, number one. And God did provide the lamb. And number two, he was saying that God would provide the lamb for himself, you know, to meet his own divine requirements. Both statements are perfectly, perfectly true. And both statements could be justifiably understood in God's, in Abraham's God-inspired answer. I mean, I fully believe that it was God who put those words in Abraham's mouth. However, there is yet a third truth which comes from Abraham's amazing statement here, and it's the most insightful one of all. Abraham also told Isaac that God would provide himself a lamb. In other words, God would himself be the lamb. You see that? It's just amazing, all that, all that comes out of this one verse. And we even have the word, my son. <laughs> the father is saying, my son, God will provide himself a lamb. It's, it's just an incredible, deep, deep prophecy. So in other words, God would himself be the lamb. And this is certainly true also, because we know that the Lord Jesus Christ, God's son, was none other than God incarnate. God himself became the lamb. Now the Lord obviously did put these words of Genesis 22:8. This is a monumental prophecy. It's, you know, just like way up there along with Genesis 3:15 is Genesis 22:8. This uh, God put these words into the mouth of Abraham. Yet what is interesting is that Abraham, as I said before, did not really answer Isaac's question. What did Isaac ask? Where is the lamb? And Abraham responded by telling him who would provide the lamb and actually that the lamb was to be God himself and that God was to provide the lamb for himself. But he didn't really say where the lamb was. (laughs) It was not really until 2,000 years later that Isaac received the answer to his question. And who did it come from? John the Baptist, because when he saw the Lord Jesus walking toward him to be baptized, what did he say? Behold, as he pointed his finger, he said, there's the lamb. Behold, the lamb of God, which cometh to take away the sins of the world or which taketh away the sin of the world. So that's where we get the answer to the question, where is the lamb? There he is. He's Jesus, Jesus Christ. Apparently, that which Isaac read in his father's face when his father uttered the words of this verse 
put an end to all of his questions. Even though he didn't get the answer, I think what he saw in his father's eyes and in his father's face, whether his father was crying or whatever, he didn't ask any more questions. We, we hear no more questions from Isaac. He now knew what was to take place. He knew that God would one day provide himself the lamb, but for now he understood that he was to serve as the lamb. Isaac would not resist doing either his earthly father's will or his heavenly father's will. He knew that if the way before him was to be difficult, it was also very, very difficult for his father. So no, he would not resist. He would not run. He would not argue. He would not complain. He wouldn't do anything except quietly submit to his father's will. He loved his father just as much as his father loved him. And they both loved their heavenly father. So in perfect unity, what did they do? It says they went both of them together to proceed with the sacrifice. Likewise, God the father did not force his son to die on the cross. Right? Christ himself even testified that he willingly laid down his life. It was the Father's will, and Christ the Son willingly obeyed. And they too, just like Abraham and Isaac, they too went, both of them, together to Calvary in perfect unity. Beautiful, beautiful picture we have here. Okay, we move right along now looked at the problem and the prediction. Now let's look at the proof, verses 9 and 10. And they came to the place which God had told him of. And Abraham built an altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar upon the wood. And Abraham stretched forth his hand and took the knife to slay his son. In the beginning of verse 9, we are told that they came to the place where God had told him of. Back in verse 2, God had told Abraham to go where? To the land of Moriah. And actually to one of the mountains, it says, also in verse 2. So to one of the mountains there in the land of clear vision. Now we discover also from verse 14 that the exact mountain where he stopped to build the altar was upon the mount of the Lord. Look at verse 14. It was the mount of the Lord. Apparently, as Abraham had lifted up his eyes when they had first arrived in the land of Moriah, God had directed his vision to the exact place, you know, afar off, where he had desired Abraham to build his altar of sacrifice. Now, Abraham could not have understood, I don't think at this point in time, he could not have understood the tremendous significance of that particular place on that particular mountain. Not only was it there that God already had a ram, you know, 
maybe even on his way to the thicket. (laughs) But not only was it there that God would provide a ram for Abraham to offer in place of Isaac, but 2,000 years later, the greatest seed to come from Abraham would be offered there for the sins of the entire world. So even in his deep grief and his anguish, Abraham had to be very careful and uh, sensitive to God's leading. You know, it's hard to be when you're in grief and anguish of soul to be, to be sensitive to his leading, but Abraham was because it was very critical to God's uh, typological representation that Isaac be offered where the temple would one day be built and also uh, where his own son would one day be crucified. And God is very, very particular about men um, completing his pictures, you know, his types. You know, that's why he got so mad at Moses. If you don't understand about types, you could say, well, God was really being a little bit extreme there when he got so angry when Moses struck the rock twice. And because of that, he didn't allow Moses to go into the promised land. Isn't that being a little harsh? No, it's not, because Moses disobeyed God and ruined the picture that God was trying to present of his son. You see, his son is the rock. Christ is the rock of our foundation. Out of him flows the living water that gives life. When Moses struck the rock, he was only to strike it once because the rock, Christ, was only smitten once, right? When he was smitten on the cross, he died once. Moses disobeyed by striking that rock twice. Christ is not to be smitten twice. So he destroyed the picture, you see? That's why God was so upset. So this is why it's so important that Abraham understood and followed the Lord's leading right to the very spot that he was to go and offer Isaac. Now Abraham, you know, had built altars all, all his life, all of his spiritual journey with the Lord. He had built them at Shechem. He had built an altar at Bethel. He had built an altar at Hebron. He had built an altar at Beersheba. But not one of them would do for God's purposes in Genesis chapter 22. They wouldn't do at all. Because uh, God wanted him to go to the place where he would offer his son. And also it's interesting to find that it took three days to get there. Because that, again, is a picture of Abraham being, I mean, Isaac being like figuratively dead for three days to represent Christ's death for three days. Well, none of those other altars would do because uh, Abraham was not to offer up a mere animal as he had done on those other altars. This time he was to offer his own son, Isaac. And so the altar must be on Mount Moriah. Why? Well, simply because there is no substitute for Calvary. There is no substitute for what occurred on Calvary when the Son of God, the Lamb of God, gave his life a ransom for many. So Abraham built his altar, we're told, and then he very methodically placed the wood in order. It says he built an altar there and laid the wood in order. Notice those two words, because everything he would do for the Lord was to be done decently and in order. He didn't just throw it up there. He, he paid attention to every detail. 
even though he was actually building the, own, the, the funeral pile for his own dearly beloved son. Yet he did it, you know, to the best of his ability. And that's why I always say we should do, what we do for the Lord should be the best we can do. You know, give him our, our first fruits. It shouldn't be sloppy agape, as Jack Wurtson always used to say. We should give him the best that we have. Um, now, perhaps, I don't know this because we don't have anything recorded here, but as, perhaps as they were building this altar and putting the wood in place and everything, perhaps Abraham was comforting his son with the words of the hope of resurrection by uh, which he was comforted. You know, he had hope that, that God would actually raise Isaac from the dead. So my imagination tells me that as they're working together, he was telling his son that this was by faith what he was planning, that, that even though he would die, God would raise him back from the dead. Otherwise, how would all those promises be fulfilled? So I think the comfort that comforted him, he was sharing with his son. This hope of the joy that was set before him, after all, was the comfort of the Savior himself as he endured the cross and, and its shame. Isn't that what we're told in Hebrews 12, too? That for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross and its shame. Well, then came the very last opportunity for resistance and for escape. Abraham's full intention of proceeding with this sacrifice was made perfectly clear. So if Isaac had any doubt whether his father would carry through with this or not, he knew now that his uh, father was going to carry through with it, especially when he came forward to bind him. He had to be bound and he had to be laid upon the altar, on the wood, in order to, again, be a full representation of the Son of God, who was bound, how? By crude spikes of, uh, to the wood. He was bound to the wood of his cross by crude spikes, nails in his hands and in his feet. No resistance was offered by Isaac. We don't hear, again, nothing. As, he, as Abraham takes him and binds him, we hear not a peep out of Isaac, not a word of complaint, not a word of anger, nothing issued from his lips. And his submission to his father, again, is a striking foreshadowing of who? Christ, the Lord Jesus, whose greatest evidence of submission to his father was in his willingness to be sacrificed. He was obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Philippians 2.8. He was brought like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before her shearers is dumb, in other words, silent, so he opened not his mouth. And that, again, is why the Holy Spirit didn't give us one word out of Isaac. Maybe he said something, but the Holy Spirit made sure nothing was recorded in God's word so that, again, he would be a perfect picture of Christ. You know, the, the fact that Isaac permitted himself, although he was younger and much stronger than his father, that he permitted himself to be bound and laid upon the altar, that is an act of supreme faith in God, is it not? 
and of total confidence and loving reverence, not only of his heavenly father, but also of his earthly father. So Isaac displayed absolute surrender by truly, truly presenting himself a living sacrifice unto God, which is our reasonable service as well. Romans 12, 1. Abraham had also displayed absolute surrender, didn't he? By his willingness to sacrifice that which was dearest to him. It says he stretched forth his hand and he took the knife to slay his son. This is the proof to you know to God that he was going to do he was going to do what God told him to do. He demonstrated that he would obey God in all matters even when he did not really fully understand and even when it meant great personal sacrifice and suffering. He demonstrated here that he loved God more than anything and more than anyone. He demonstrated uh, absolute surrender to God. And so I would say that both Isaac and Abraham, both of them, serve us as mighty examples, don't they? Mighty examples of faith. On a personal level, we should look at them and then we should ask ourselves what we have done by way of surrender to God and by way of sacrifice to him. Have we offered up our lives as living sacrifices to our Lord? Do we show by what we're willing to sacrifice and surrender? Do we show God that we love him more than anything? And more than anyone, are we willing to offer ourselves to him and to his cause? I mean, you know, not just Sunday morning, maybe not even just Sunday morning and Sunday night and Wednesday night. Are we sold out, surrendered to him? Are we willing to give him, as I said before, the first fruits of our time? of our talents, and of our treasures. Are we willing to obey him no matter what it costs us personally? Remember what Christ said? He said, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whosoever will save his life, you know, if you try to hold on to your life and live it for yourself, what will happen? For whosoever will save his life will lose it. But whosoever will lose his life for my sake will find it. And here we have an example of that because they were both willing to lose their lives for Christ's sake. And yet in doing that, they found their lives. So we see then that in the heart and the mind of Abraham... Isaac figuratively died. In fact, in Abraham's heart and mind, Isaac had been figuratively dead for how many days? Three days. Ever since he had purposed in his heart, in, in, I'm talking about Abraham, ever since Abraham had purposed in his heart that he would fully obey God's command, he had seen Isaac as already dead. Now, in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 17 and 18, I've got verse 17 up here, the Holy Spirit even confirmed that for all intents and purposes, Abraham had offered up Isaac. Now, is that a contradiction because Abraham didn't have to offer up Isaac? 
Was that a contradiction? No, it wasn't. Because the inspired author of the book of Hebrews tells us that Abraham offered up his only begotten son, how? By faith. So see, by faith in his heart, he had really gone through with the whole thing and offered up Isaac. He had the knife hanging in the air. So what we learn next really symbolizes the resurrection of Isaac from the dead. And it was on the third day. Although this again is a beautiful picture of Christ's resurrection from the dead on the third day, there is one significant difference. And what is that? Isaac didn't really have to die. He didn't literally die and raise from the dead, whereas Christ did literally die. He died physically, and he did raise bodily from the dead. So we move now to the turn of events which took Abraham totally by surprise. He was not expecting this. By faith, he fully believed that God would raise Isaac from the dead after he himself had not only killed him, but then had burned him. What do you think the fire was for? I mean, he wasn't going to just be killed. He was going to be burned. So this was going to be quite a resurrection, you know, a resurrection from the ashes. Abraham had fully understood that God had intended for him to complete the slaying and the burning of his son. So the sudden intervention that we come to next by the angel of the Lord, who in fact was who? The pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ. This was an absolute and very joyful shock to the old patriarch who had proven his unflinching devotion to God. So let's look at the prevention, verses 11 and 12. It says, And the angel of the Lord, or the angel of Jehovah, called unto him out of heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. You know, whenever the Lord says somebody's name twice, it's really important news. There are only a few people in the Bible that get their name called out twice. Who were some of them? Martha, Martha. Saul, Saul. I think he said it to Peter, did he? Not repeat Peter's name twice, maybe. But there weren't very many. But here we've got Abraham, Abraham. And what did Abraham say? Here am I. <laughs> And he, the angel of the Lord, said, Lay not thine hand upon the lad, neither do thou anything unto him. For now I know that thou fearest God, seeing thou hast not withheld thy son, thine only son, from who? From me. That gives us the clue who this is. It's the Lord. Well, as the knife was about to fall, the angel of Jehovah cried out to Abraham from heaven, said his name twice, and for the third time in this account, Abraham responded immediately with the same words, Here am I. Three times in this account he says, Here am I. Verse 1, verse 7, verse 11. How important it is for a person to be a good listener. That's what I got out of this. Got to be a good listener. Abraham, you see, was tuned in to hear the voice of his Lord, whether in peaceful times, because remember the first time that God spoke to him back in verse 1? Abraham had just been, he had just, he had been in 30 years of peace. 
and yet he was in tune to hear God speak from heaven. You know, all of a sudden, God said uh, his name, and there Abraham responded, Behold, here I am. So we need to be in tune with God, whether in times of peace or in times of extreme trial. Can you imagine a more... A bigger trial than what he was going through at that moment the second time when you know he was about to slay his son yet even then his his ears were attuned to hearing his Lord speak and then also the here I am of verse 7 that demonstrates that he was also a good listener when it came to interpersonal relationships when his son had called out to him so we too should always be ready, always be ready to be there listening when God or even when our fellow man calls out to us. What should always be on our tongues? Here am I. Here I am. I'm ready and I'm willing to listen. Especially with our children. This was his son. We need to be there for our children. And that's why our phone bill is so extremely high. Because we're there to hear our children. They're not at home anymore. So our phone bill is atrocious. Because they're calling us every day two, three times a day. <laughs> but I'm not going to complain because I want to I be there for my children. I think right now they seem to need me more than when they were little. So it, never, it doesn't ever end, guys. So the angel of the Lord then spoke words which must, you know, must have been pure, sweet music to Abraham. I just can't imagine how his heart must have felt when he was interrupted from what he was about to do. Now, since the words were addressed to Abraham, it's probably unlikely that Isaac heard these words. These words were spoken to Abraham. And uh, yet, what would Isaac have heard? He would have heard his father say, <laughs> Here am I. And most likely, he would have understood that his father was in communication with heaven. And so I imagine that relieved his heart a little bit also. And if his eyes were open, whether they were or not, I don't know. But if his eyes were open, Isaac surely would have seen the um, immediate change of expression on his father's face. And he probably knew, would have known that something was uh, significantly about to change. What he would not have heard probably was the angel's words, which of course were the Lord's words, Lay not thine hand upon the lad, neither do thou anything unto him. For now I know that thou fearest God, seeing that thou hast not withheld thy son, thy only son, from me. So I don't imagine that Isaac heard those words. And as I said, the words from me confirmed that this was the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ. Now Abraham's obedience here in willingly offering up Isaac had demonstrated, as we said, his absolute surrender to the sovereign will of God. Abraham had been tested as to the proof of his fear and his love and his devotion and his surrender to God. And did he pass this test? Oh boy, yes, with absolutely flying colors. There's A++, you could just keep writing pluses as far as you can write. He really passed this test. Of course, the Lord all along knew that Abraham would pass this test, that he would be obedient. But as I mentioned in our lesson last week, Abraham needed to know this truth about his own faith. Furthermore, you and I needed it as an example for our faith, didn't we? 
Also, what do you think Isaac learned about the faith of his father in this account? What an example his father was to him about being, you know, willing to give everything to the Lord, whatever he asked. And also, what do you think Isaac learned about his own heart and his own faith? He learned a tremendous amount about himself as well. And what do you think Abraham learned about Isaac? He learned a lot about his son as well. So you see how much was gained from this test? Also, without this testing of Abraham's faith, we would not have this whole beautiful event to serve as such a tremendous prophetic picture of the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. And it's these kind of pictures which just help to increase our faith, right? It increases mine tremendously when I see, wow, only God could have written this book. I really better pay attention to this book. This is a God-inspired book. So it's, it's just incredible that we have this wonderful story here for, for uh, this test. You know, sometimes you say, well, why do I have to be tested? We see tests are important. They teach us an awful lot. All right, let's look now at the provision, verse 13. The provision. And Abraham lifted up his eyes. I'm sorry, last time I, t- I left out a lifted up. Remember I told you about the lifted ups in Genesis? Well, here's another one. And this is interesting because it, it needed to be here. This was a lifted up of his eyes to see the sin substitute. The last time he lifted his eyes was to see the place of Calvary. Now he lifts up his eyes to see the ram. So this falls right into the sequence that we were talking about last week. Um, And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the stead of his son. What we have here now is a typological change, or what we would call a double type of Christ. You see, even though Isaac has presented us with many, many wonderful ways in which he prefigured Christ, yet he could only do so to a certain degree. And this is true with a lot of types in the Bible. Just like a shadow will always fall short of giving us all the details and the perfections of the person or the object that's casting that shadow. A shadow doesn't give a perfect uh, image of you, does it? Well, neither can a type give a perfect image of the one it's picturing. And so uh, types in the Old Testament always will fall short of of fully revealing the person of Christ. Now, the reason why the Lord himself had to intervene... In the slaying of Isaac was, well, for one reason, because God does not promote human murder, does he? Of course not. Neither does he promote the sacrifice of one's children, such as the pagan gods had done. Secondly, the sacrifice of Isaac could never, ever satisfy God. Isaac was not sinless. His death up there on the altar would have accomplished absolutely nothing for anyone. Isaac himself needed a redeemer. 
he himself needed a sin substitute. And this is why the Lord provided a ram. And this is why the Lord told Abraham to offer up the ram for a burnt offering in the stead of his son. Instead of his son. In, in the stead of is the substitution teaching of the gospel message. So the ram, you see, then became the prophetic type of Christ who died in the stead of sinners who, like Isaac, were already in the place of death, right? All men, as sinners, before they're saved, are dead in their sins. So like Isaac, they're in the place of death. They're bound, just like he was bound, with the the knife of divine justice just poised over them. So we're all like Isaac. We all need a sin substitute. What are we bound by? By by our own sin and by our uh, inability to help ourselves. So the ram added the critical doctrinal truth of substitutionary sacrifice to the type which had been missing if we only had Isaac alone. Isaac needed a substitutionary sinless sacrifice. So that's what the ram gives us. So if we take Isaac and the ram together as a double picture or a double type of Christ, then we have the full picture. Isaac pictured Christ up to a point, but you see he was not sinless. The ram, not having the ability to sin, was sinless. Now notice too that the ram was caught how? How was he caught? (laughs) Can you see him there? I know it's kind of dark, but he was caught by his strongest feature. He was caught by his horns. Now, horns in the Bible always speak of power. He was caught by his horns, his power. He was not caught by some other part of his body, which would have caused his body to be bruised or blemished or have any of his bones broken. You see, God's provision for a sin substitute was to always be one of perfect quality so as to properly picture the perfection of his son who was without spot, without blemish. Because why? Because he was sinless. And you remember, no bone of his body was to be broken. Just like none of the sacrificial animals of the Old Testament were allowed to be broken. When they were offered as a sacrifice, they couldn't have anything, any bones broken. And they had to pick a lamb that was perfect, without spot or blemish. This is why the Lord Jesus on the cross gave up his spirit. You know, he he laid down his own life. He, He gave up his spirit before in death before the Romans came along to speed up his death because the Passover was coming I mean the the Sabbath and uh, what did they do to the two thieves to speed up the death process they they broke their legs and that would cause them to collapse and they couldn't get air and they would suffocate much faster die much faster and they were shocked when they came to Jesus because he was already dead I mean, normally men didn't die that fast, but he gave up his spirit purposely before they would do that so that not a bone of his body would be broken. Again, you know, to keep the perfect picture. 
Well, the ram caught in the thicket then by his horns. And by the way, when we see the lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ, in the book of Revelation, chapter 5, verse 6, he is described as a lamb. And guess what he has? Horns. Go ahead and read it later on today. You'll see that the lamb has horns in Revelation 5, 6. So he's caught in the thicket by his horns, and that symbolizes his power. And also um, that he was caught by his horns, that symbolizes the spotless perfection of the Lord Jesus. Now another way that the ram pictured Christ, the true lamb of God, is by the fact that he was near And again, we see the significance of the name Moriah, clear vision. The ram had been near, he had been within clear sight, but Abraham had not noticed him. However, with the Lord's additional teaching about the importance of an offering substitute for Isaac, Abraham was then given clear vision to see the ram who was right where? It says behind him. He was behind him. You know what? Christ is also near because he came down from heaven to be where the sinner could have clear vision of him. He willingly allowed himself to be caught in the thickets of this world and sacrificed in our stead or in our place, although his horns of power could have easily called down 12 legions of angels to slay all of his foes. Furthermore, Christ is yet very near today, isn't he? I mean, he's only a prayer away. Actually, if you're a believer, he is with us always. But for the sinner, he is very near because he's only a prayer away. Any sinner can call out to him by faith to be saved, and then he or she will learn the truth of his nearness, as you and I, I hope, have all experientially learned. Also, the ram was free, totally free. It was not one of Abraham's rams. It it cost Abraham absolutely nothing. God had provided the lamb, right? It was totally free. Isaac would not have been free. It would have cost Abraham that which was dearest and most precious to him. And all Abraham had to do was take it. He was free. Likewise, the Lord Jesus Christ offered salvation. His offered salvation is absolutely free. There's nothing we can do to purchase it, to pay for it. He freely became our sin substitute. However, although the ram was near, and although the ram was uh, free, it would have done Abraham no good whatsoever if he had just looked at the ram and admired the ram and even said that he believed that the ram was uh, it would satisfy God as a required offering in the stead of his son Isaac. I mean, he could have stood there and looked at the, the ram all day long, and it would have done him no good and would have done Isaac no good at all. What did he have to do? As you see in the picture, he had to take the ram. He had to appropriate the ram for his offering, or it would have never taken Isaac's place on the altar. In other words, Abraham had to take the ram just like the sinner cannot just stand back and admire Christ 
or merely say that he or she believes in Christ. I mean, even the demons believe in Christ. They know who he is, and they, and they tremble. Christ has to be appropriated. He has to be, in other words, received. And this is where so many people in churches just, you know, they miss heaven by 18 inches because they believe in him up here, but they have not appropriated him down to their heart. 18 inches between the head and the heart. You can miss heaven by 18 inches if you have only head knowledge and not heart knowledge. It's not merely enough to learn of him and to know that he can save you from your sins. He has to be called upon for salvation. Just like Abraham had to go and and take that ram, we have to receive Christ. That's why it says in 1 John 1:12, and as many as what? received him to them gave he power to become the sons of God. And that's why it says that uh, we when Christ stands at the the door of our heart and knocks, that what do we have to do? We have to open the door and invite him in. What is known in the head must be received in the heart. That's so critical. If you if you have any question about that, please come see me afterwards. Because that's how you're born again. When you in, actually invite Christ. When you appropriate Christ into your heart. Into your life. Okay, the praise. This is the end. And maybe we'll be close to stopping on time. The praise. Verse 14. And Abraham called the name of the place Jehovah Jireh. As it is said to this day. In the mount of the Lord it shall be seen. As we've learned so often throughout our study of Abraham's life, we again find that his obedience helped him to greatly increase in his knowledge of who? Of God. Because he had been so obedient, oops, that's right, yeah, I am right. Because he had been so obedient in his willingness to offer up his only beloved son Isaac, he grew in his understanding and in his knowledge of God. And we see this uh, additional spiritual growth by the new name, another new name for God that Abraham gives here in this verse. We are told that Abraham named the place there on Mount Moriah where he had offered up the ram in the stead of Isaac. He named that place what? Everybody say it together. Jehovah Jireh. That's another beautiful name for God. In the Hebrew, that name means the Lord will provide. In fact, you notice that verse 14 goes on to tell us that it would be in that mount of the Lord where it would be seen. Again, we have clear vision. (laughs) Would be seen. What would be seen in that mount of the Lord? It would be seen that the Lord would indeed provide. What would he provide? He would provide the Lamb, the Lamb of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, some Hebrew scholars actually believe that Jehovah Jireh means more accurately, the Lord will appear. But as 
so often we see this is the case when a Hebrew name can be seen to have a like a double interpretation. Both names are appropriate. So I don't care which one you take. Hebrew scholars are divided on this. Some say absolutely it means the Lord will provide. Some say no, absolutely it means the Lord will appear. Well, not only this is they're both true. Not only would God provide on that mountain of the Lord but the one he would provide would be who? The Lord himself who would appear unto men. So you see, he would provide, and he would provide when the Lord would appear. Because didn't Abraham's prediction say that God would provide himself the lamb? So both of these statements are true about what Jehovah Jireh means. And it's very interesting that... Um, Moses apparently understood that even though Moses was many, many years before Christ, he, he's the one who added that little end of verse 14 where it says, In the mount of the Lord it shall be seen. Moses understood what was going to go on here. He understood that one day in that same place we would see that the Lord would provide the lamb. And that the Lord would appear in that spot. And he himself would be the lamb. You can go on and on with it. But Moses seemed to understand. Well, speaking of Moses, what does all of this tell us about Abraham's understanding of the future sacrifice of God's son? Well, I think it's very safe to say that Abraham understood quite a bit about the promised seed of the woman, the coming Savior, who would crush Satan's head and redeem men from their sinful condition and give them eternal life. Through the promises that had been given to Abraham about all the nations being blessed, you know, through his seed, and he would become the father of, of not only nations but also of kings. We saw that back in Genesis chapter 17. And the promise that... that uh, that God's covenant with him concerning not only the land, the promised land, but also his seed was an everlasting covenant, I think that, that Abraham understood a whole lot about the Redeemer. I think he also understood that, uh, you know, the, the Messiah was to be born through him and specifically through his promised son Isaac. And then through the miraculous birth of Isaac... Abraham probably understood something of the miraculous birth of this coming Savior. After all, if he went back to that original promise in Genesis 3.15 concerning the woman's seed, he would understand that it had to be some kind of a miraculous birth because women do not have, what? Seed. So I think he also understood that there would be a miraculous birth involved with the coming Redeemer. Apparently, Abraham also began to have clear vision of the necessity of the Redeemer's substitutionary sacrifice through that ram which had been provided as a substitute for Isaac. Abraham may even have had some vision of Christ's resurrection by way of the resurrection of his own son, Isaac. He may even have understood that the Redeemer would be God himself. After all, Abraham had told Isaac, My son, God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. And then what did he name the place of that sacrifice? 
the Lord will provide and also the Lord will appear. Speaking specifically of Abraham, I want you to listen to this statement by the Lord Jesus Christ. And then you make up your own mind about how much Abraham actually understood. But speaking of him, the Lord Jesus said to the religious leaders of Israel, He said, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. And what? And he saw it and was glad. John 8:56. Where do you think that Abraham came to really see Christ? I mean, Christ said he saw him. Where do you think? I believe that it was on Mount Moriah, the place of clear vision, the place of Calvary, the place where the Lord would provide, the place where the Lord would appear. And the place where all of those with eyes of faith would learn the answer to Isaac's question, Where is the lamb? The lamb is he who, unlike Isaac, was sinless. And therefore, unlike Isaac, he had to die so as to become our sin substitute. The lamb is who? The lamb is Jesus Christ, God's only begotten, beloved Son. But where is the Lamb today? Where is he today? You know where the answer is? The book of Revelation. He is seated at the right hand of God, preparing at any moment to take into his hands the title deed to this earth, which is his by way of creation and his by way of redemption. If you want to know where the Lamb is today, then you need to take a look at Revelation chapter 5 and see him as not a lamb anymore, but as the lion of the tribe of Judah. And I believe he's about to make his appearance, especially with what's going on over there in the Middle East. Oh boy. Let's pray.